Coming up on Life is a Festival. Eventually, though, I realized that it was about the show, not the throw. That the alternative to a Mardi Gras bead shouldn't just be another bead. That it didn't have to be like, oh, we need to throw something at the people. What else can we throw? <laughs> so I try and um, promote the experience now. And it's taken a while for people to understand why I don't want them to have beads in their hands during the parades. And there's a lot of broken hearts in my parades of people who spent a lot of money on beads and just envision that their experience is going to be making it rain for the crowds with their beads. But what we found is that when our participants, our members have something in their hands that the audience wants, then the audience says things like, Gimme, gimme. When nobody has anything in their hands, the audience says, you're beautiful and I love you. My name is Eamon Armstrong, and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Well, Hail there, carnival kings and queens. At the time of this recording, it is Mardi Gras season in New Orleans, and I had the privilege of attending my very first Mardi Gras uh, this past weekend in the wonderful city down south. And Mardi Gras is not simply Fat Tuesday, which is one of the myriad things you will learn on this podcast about Mardi Gras. It's a whole season. And I got to experience that season for the first time. And as an intrepid festival adventurer, this has been on the bucket list for quite a while. As I was heading to New Orleans, I asked my community who most represents this spectacular holiday such that I may interview them. And I was pointed in the direction of one marvelous Katrina Breeze, also known as the Mother Shucker of the Bearded Oysters crew. So... A long time ago, Katrina Breeze was actually Karina Nathan, and she arrived in New Orleans just before Hurricane Katrina blew through. And so this podcast starts with that event. The podcast is woven through with decadence and death from Second Lines, the famous jazz funerals of New Orleans, to Katrina's own experience with loss and also, why washing a body is like doing acid with God. Seriously, this conversation goes to so many amazing places and includes some of the weirdest places I've been on this show. There's a very odd conversation about balls. We go so deep on the history of Mardi Gras. We talk about parades and balls, what it means to parade, the prideful showing. We talk about pubic wigs. We talk about how Mardi Gras beads are the hot dogs of the plastic world. And of the many different ways that Katrina is an advocate, what she has tried to do to bring awareness and find a way to supplement the poor little Mardi Gras bead that clogs the sewers of New Orleans. Much like a life, 
there is a deep and tender section where we talk about Katrina's work in advocacy against gun violence and the tragic loss that brought her to that work. But she also approaches that work like an art project, and she has so much humor and pride and parading in all of it. Frankly, thematically, this was such a joy of a podcast to host because there's so many beautiful themes of of self-expression and resilience and triumph and service that just amble along through this beautiful conversation like a parade route. You know, there's microdosing and mental health. She has this whole thing about throwing a lemonade party when life gives you lemons. Seriously, what an incredible woman and what a joy and a pleasure to get to interview her. One note I'll say, we do allude to a parade that I was not able to participate in, which means that I have a rain check with the marvelous mother shucker of Mardi Gras. And Someday I will return to parade fully with her. And so here you are, whether it's Mardi Gras or some other time of the year when you're thinking about celebration and festivities and festivals, here is the magical Katrina Breeze. Just before we started, I asked you, how many podcasts you'd been on and you said like 20 podcasts Mm -hmm. so i wonder what would make this particular podcast experience unique and joyful for you in the array of podcasts that you have been on um i think that it's it's really needed that there be a good one to release when i die oh yeah so I'm, i'm hoping that that us meeting now will still be able to release this when I die. When you die? Yeah, okay. so please do that. Okay. Or re-release it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so wow, that's that's a lot to, mm-hmm. to capture a complete life to this point. Mm-hmm. What would... Well, not everything, but like some highlights, yeah. like inspire the people that I'm leaving behind. So there's an element of eulogy to this particular moment? Like um, a self-authored eulogistic mm, interview? Maybe that's added into the post content okay. later. So I could start with a eulogy? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I love the jazz funeral. Mm-hmm. I, I did a podcast about Dia de Muertos with a woman named Claudia Oliver, who does mm-hmm. a festival called La Calaca. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we talked about are the, the different ways that we experience death. And we don't, in U.S. culture, well, I mean, there's a lot of U.S. cultures, mm-hmm. but in the sort of broad American culture that we share, we don't really celebrate death. Death is a very odd quiet commercial loss yes yeah it's a shame everywhere else um here it's totally different though yeah um here we are constantly celebrating death even when there isn't a body sometimes we just have celebratory second lines to you know reconfirm our aliveness Mm. what is a second line a second line is a type of funeral, often called a jazz funeral, and it is the second line of people that follows the hearse. And so after a solemn sort of funeral, traditional religious funeral ritual at a church, then as the people are coming out of the church, then there will be a brass band, and there will be the body that's perhaps in a casket with a hearse, maybe horse-drawn, maybe it's just cremated ashes. So the the first group of people are the mourners, but then the second line of people is the people who are just 
pushing that party up to heaven and celebrating the person and almost like showing how important their life was by being so lively and celebratory. And it's also a very healing ritual because it forces you to dance after a funeral, which can be a really intense experience. And then being forced to dance, whether there's a funeral or not, can be a very intense experience too. But coming into your community and dancing with all your loved ones is incredibly healing. And um, I hope that people get the chance to experience death rituals that way in their lives and in their losses. Because one of the things that I've sort of learned in looking at funeral rituals around the country is that just because you have a ritual doesn't mean it's working. Hmm. And what does it mean for a ritual to work? Well, the purpose of the funeral, the, the number one purpose of a funeral is to sort of declare the dead in sort of a, a legal societal way and then to bury the dead or to lay them in their final resting place. And then the third function is to connect to the community of loved ones that are experiencing loss and hopefully help them. And I think that a lot of funerals don't really connect the community as drastically as New Orleans funerals can. Mm. So the first line is the experience of the traditional funeral rites, and then the second line is the celebration with a brass band and a parade. Well, the first line is the people that are essentially walking in front of the second line. Oh, okay. So they might be like attendants, or it might be the hearse driver or the security people, but more, um, I guess, like more controlled. And then, and then the brass band, and then all the people just dancing and and putting themselves into the streets too, because mourning is the collective grief process. When we mourn is when we're doing it together. So part of how we heal from grief is to mourn together. And so it's this amazing party where you get to mourn together and feel joy and feel so much love and feel so connected with um, your people. Mm. Did New Orleans have an experience like that, a collective mourning, grieving, healing after Hurricane Katrina? Was there an experience where the city together had that had that? There's been there's been many. There's been a lot of, I guess, like disagreements about how things like that should be done. Like, we shouldn't put a funeral on New Orleans. You know, I mean, maybe we should put a funeral on Katrina. But there's also the aspects of that. The Katrina experience isn't isn't finished for everybody. A lot of Mm. people are still in that struggle, not just here in New Orleans, but people whose families have been pushed out by Katrina and by the post-Katrina politics and housing crisis and different, mostly housing issues that have pushed a lot of families out. And so to, to say that, to say that we're like finished with Katrina would be a hurtful thing for a lot of people, even though it would be really fun to get to like celebrate how far we've come. 
there's still a lot of people that aren't available to celebrate with us. And does that mean that there will never be a kind of collective closure in relation to Hurricane Katrina, which happened 15 years ago? And out of respect for the harm that it caused people that is irrevocable, does it, is it always an open aspect of, of this town and, and, this, and this culture here? I think like in, I went to New York for the 10 year anniversary of September 11th and I, and, and they were already very much ahead of their collective trauma as mm. a city than, than we were. And I felt that they were still so traumatized by it that even 10 years later, it was still so sensitive and here and there, it's very much never forget like that there's that is very important to them to continuously say the names and to memorialize that day and to never forget. I think here there's a sense of certain things should be forgotten and certain things shouldn't be forgotten. People don't want to dwell on Katrina, but they also don't want to forget about the people who are still in need from Katrina. So we were, we kind of started off saying that this podcast would stand out amongst all the others if mm-hmm. it was the podcast that you could be remembered on upon your death. And um, I actually start each podcast asking what a home run would look like. Mm-hmm. What, what would be the biggest win for this podcast? So I think we kind of touched on that, but I just want to open up that question for you. What, what kind of conversation are you most excited to have today? And what does a win look like for you? I want to inspire your listeners. Mm. Inspire them to do what? To be whoever they feel they can be and to contribute, to follow their passions, to inspire others, to be as alive as they can, to be part of communities wherever they go, you know, to participate in being culture bearers in in tons of different cultures that we participate in all the time, not just very sacred ones, but all the spaces that we're in. Well, this is a very fertile audience for that I know. particular message. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's kind of the, the people who are listening to this are just are already kind of in that momentum yeah. and looking for the little tidbits and the life lessons and uh-huh. the ways to, to express themselves more fully and also to contribute and serve. Mm-hmm. And so... I was connected to you through two friends of mine who said, mm-hmm. you are the person that I'm supposed to come talk to mm-hmm. in New Orleans. And I want to give a shout out to Begets, mm-hmm. um, who connected us. And he has a wonderful podcast, The Upful Life. Mm-hmm. So if you are listening now and want to check out a great music podcast, um, you were on one of his early episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to listen to that. And something that I gleaned from that conversation was that you have lived in such a way that you've deeply engaged with culture uh, in this place mm-hmm. and with its contradictions. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I love it. Mm-hmm. Like, I love the contradictions. <laughs> I, love, I love getting in there and saying, well, we love this, mm-hmm. but there's also this, and we can't pretend that there isn't lead in the beads. Mm-hmm. We can't pretend that, that, just as you've just done in the opening of this, we can't say that Katrina's over because mm-hmm. what about these people? Mm-hmm. And so this idea of dancing with death mm-hmm. is, I think, part of that approach to life. And mm-hmm. I see it in you and in your life. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, this is very much a city of death. And I think that's why it's so full of life. Because I think mm. that understanding death and being comfortable with it is what can make one live their fullest life. Truly. And I, I think the fear of death can stop us from living. Mm-hmm. You know, what risks can we take if we're so petrified by loss? Mm-hmm. And I remember, and I've told this story on the podcast before, but at Burning Man in 2011, that temple of transition, mm-hmm. I thought it was so exquisite and I was so mad they were going to burn it. And I was just beginning to become, I, I'd gone the year before and I just beginning to become aware of Burning Man culture and this idea of impermanence. And gosh, like if they're going to burn it, that's horrible. But the fact that they burn it means that you'll enjoy it richly now. Mm-hmm. If it just gets picked up and put in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. then, oh, I'm going to go to Pittsburgh and look at it sometime. You're never going to Pittsburgh to look at it. Mm-hmm. You know, you almost, you missed your opportunity to see it in its fullness because it it wasn't temporary. And because it's temporary, you have to be here for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's kind of what you're talking about. That being close to death makes life richer and more vibrant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Which might lead us to the decadence. Okay, let's go straight to the decadence. <laughs> I want to go to the decadence. Yeah. I mean, it's all so much about the decadence. About I like to think about the dance with the decay. Mm. And... Um, sort of like at some point that you're not just continuing to lift things and make them more, but that you're just going to stop and enjoy them and let them fall into decay. I like that. With lots of glitter. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I feel like New Orleans has that energy, that kind of fecund, dilapidated, Mm -hmm. earthy, rich, fertile, magic Mm -hmm. space. And I've only been here once for Jazz Fest in, in 2014. And just coming back last night, I was like, oh, I love this place. Mm-hmm. The air is so heavy with what could possibly be and also with what is slipping away in every moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who's coming here? And who's coming here? Yeah. People are coming here all the time. They're so attracted to it and bringing new energies and new styles and new music and art and friends and all kinds of influences are always um, flowing through this city for hundreds of years. And when did you first flow through this city? In 2002. Mm -hmm. I was, I grew up in outside Boston and I pretty much got in a van with a musician that lived here and came here. And he's like long gone, but he might listen to this. Okay. Thanks for bringing but, me. <laughs> but you, but you, re, you remained, and yeah. um, and you arrived just a couple years before Hurricane Katrina, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, I want to talk about that because that's had a huge influence on on your life, mm-hmm. including your name. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and actually, I listened to um, Christopher what, what Breedlove yeah, from Burners Without Borders. Yeah, I yeah. listened to him yesterday, and that was really interesting to hear about. Katrina kind of from like the opposite because like I found Burning Man sort of through Katrina it was sort of the opposite and like he found Katrina through Burning Man and um I didn't so I was here in in 2005 during Katrina and had a really amazing life like I had 
I was doing costume design and I had just started the Bearded Oyster Dance Troupe and I was in line to be a carnival queen, um, the next carnival. And so I was not ready to let go when the city flooded or the the federal disaster or however we call it, the, the great catastrophe happened. And yeah, so I... I I actually did a parade right before I evacuated, which is not a good idea. Right before as in how soon before the hurricane hit were you in a parade? Like by the time I left, I pretty much had to sleep in my car on the highway because there was no more driving because the storm was bad. That's a dance with death. Yeah, for sure. But it was pretty amazing that the Bearded Oysters performed the night before and we, we really had no idea that it was going to be what it was. And um, the, city, the city has experiment, experienced so many different types of storms and disasters that there's a tendency to not take it very seriously here. Mm. And so we didn't, we didn't take it seriously enough. And so when I evacuated, I had my mom and my boyfriend and we got into like a little VW Golf and eventually made our way to Atlanta and um, rode out the storm like on the side of the road. It was really chaotic. Like it was incredibly frightening to be sort of in the traffic jams of that and trying to evacuate and not having a lot of answers about what was happening at home and a lot of rumors happening We didn't really have social media at that point, so it was hard to check in with people when there weren't any landlines. But I was really determined to come back, and I, out of my own, like, naivete, was like, I'm going to start a USO troop in New Orleans, and I'm going to go entertain the troops. So... I ended up coming back and I had all these little costumes that were like different military, like sexy Navy, sexy Marine, sexy. You you had them with you when you evacuated or? Well, I had them anyway at my studio. So I was like, I need to get back to those costumes and I need to like raise up morale and make sure that we rebuild. And, but then I got home and it was, it was a pretty scary time. I'm glad that I went through it and it was, so educational like I feel like I could probably roof a house now because I learned so much about how things are built and how things come apart and how to repair weaknesses in infrastructures what did it look like when you when you rolled back into the city when I got into Mississippi it just felt like all of a sudden there was this giant monster that had just stepped over everything and smashed things and the trees were pushed over and the signs were all twisted and it was it was very exciting to me like it seemed like wow I get to go be a founding father of my own city and I just moved here and I have all these ways I want it to be so that I can be a part of it I was very concerned that Mardi Gras wasn't going to come back because there was a lot of bigger issues. So I was like determined that we would have Mardi Gras in 2006 so that I could get my crown. (laughs) Wow. And um, was Mardi Gras different after Katrina? Not much. No? There were things that were absent, but everything that existed felt the same. And um, it it was just more concentrated. 
So instead of there being 40 parades, there was there was less, but there was still a lot of people at those parades. And me saying that our group was going to parade gave the women in our group a reason to come home and experience the city again and see what it felt like. So they were able to just maybe come in for the weekend or have a visit because a lot of, especially women didn't come back. A lot of my peers didn't come back. A lot of them had kids and this wasn't a place for kids or, and they had to put their kids in school systems like in Texas and Georgia and stuff like that. So a lot of people didn't come back and the bearded oysters gave them a reason to. Mm. Well, we're going to we're going to get into the bearded oysters, but just as for the for our last little moment with Hurricane Katrina, mm-hmm. your name is not originally Katrina, is it? No. No. It's a it's like I have well, my real name, well, it's not my real name, but my government ID. Your if government any, name. If anyone wants to send me money, send it to Karina Nathan. Okay. Karina <laughs> Nathan is, the, is that's the yeah, government all name. Yeah, all checks. Okay, so all Karina checks Nathan. go to Karina Nathan. But you yeah. are not Karina Nathan no. any longer. No, some places I am, like certain communities, like my family, they still call me Karina. But they they're warming up to it and... There's times that I, there are times that I do still use it. There's recently I was talking to this elderly African-American woman that was local to here and I just couldn't tell her that my name was Katrina. Why not? I just felt like it would, it would be so triggering for her to just hear that word and I didn't want to say it. Mm. But, and yet, and yet it, became your name after Mm -hmm. the event yeah well it it had sort of been my name before it's a name I've always answered to like when I was a little girl and I went to school the teacher thought my name was Katrina so I just let her think that I didn't really it didn't like matter to me that that's what it was that year and it's always been a name that's followed me a name that like I've answered to and I felt like after Hurricane Katrina that my name became Katrina oh sorry Karina and Katrina sorry Karina <laughs> yeah okay and I didn't like that name no that's not a very good name it's not good no. to have sorry in your name right doesn't really set you up for confidence no. <laughs> and assertiveness in the world yeah so I I felt like a really different person after Katrina I didn't feel like the Pollyanna that I had been before I felt like really grown up and really strong and like I didn't I didn't want to be a sexy, pretty thing. Mm. And I felt that the name Karina was like a sexy, pretty name. And Katrina was not. No, Katrina was scary as fuck. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. So this is kind of a bit of the through line of the conversation too is mm-hmm. around is around gender because there's mm-hmm. so many ways in which your intersection with Mardi Gras has had to do with your gender and your oh, support yeah. of other women. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that there was this sexy, pretty thing, mm-hmm. Karina... Pollyanna prior to Katrina and then mm-hmm. afterwards Katrina with a bit of the energy of the destroyer mm-hmm. you know yeah. and, and and yet also Katrina Breeze mm-hmm. so what is the Breeze component well I needed a last name to go with that and I don't know if your listeners follow football <laughs> well you know they I do keep asking people what a home run is so they 
probably know something about yeah. sports. I don't know. I mean, I I'm should not pull so them. into football, but I don't think yeah, Drew Brees a lot of head injuries is a quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, which is an NFL team that had never gone to the Super Bowl prior to Katrina. And then after Hurricane Katrina, Drew Brees, who is known as the Breezes and is seen as the Messiah of post-Katrina New Orleans that gave us a reason to live here again mm. by bringing the Saints to the Super Bowl. Mm. Oh, I didn't know that story. Yeah. So wow. I also felt like my family has a lot of companies that they use the word Nathan with. And I felt that I didn't want to share any Google space with them. <laughs> That I just wanted a lot of freedom. And Drew Brees is just such a hero that I felt that there was nothing I could do that would really like shame Drew Brees's family, that they could handle whatever, you know, negativity I brought on their family name. And I like that Katrina is the destroyer and Brees is the resurrector. And Katrina is like the sort of harsh storm and Brees is the pretty wind softness yeah mm. um so I, I love this idea of death and resurrection and death and resurrection for you you know that you were a certain person prior to katrina mm -hmm. and that uh, katrina transformed you mm -hmm. and looking at what you did after katrina mm -hmm. you very much have an energy that is somewhat of a destroyer in certain ways mm -hmm. building things but also kind of pointing out things and breaking things down and Mm -hmm. Certainly, some coyote energy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> certainly, some some Shiva energy in mm -hmm. what you do, and I love the idea. And this is very much in the realm of festivals and celebrations and festival culture and Burning Man that we can take on a sort of avatar and live certain aspects of ourselves more robustly within that. Mm -hmm. um, so I was once the pretty prince of parties, mm -hmm. which comes from a song by Flight of the Concords okay. when uh, when Brett accidentally eats acid and then flounces around in a purple velvet coat and mm -hmm. says, I'm the pretty prince of parties. You're a flaky piece of pastry. Mm -hmm. And so for a period of my life, I wanted to be the pretty prince of parties mm -hmm. and travel the world going to all the parties. And I got to be flouncier and more frivolous. Mm -hmm. And there came a time when that character had to die. Mm -hmm. And in that death, I'm able to explore aspects of my personality that weren't, weren't mm -hmm. present. So for you, are there aspects that died along with Karina that perhaps you miss or perhaps aren't? Well, I guess like when I first started using Katrina Breeze, I was making a lot of like borderline porn art on the internet. Okay. What is borderline porn <laughs> art? I mean, I think it like... Just, er just erotic and sexy or like borderline... Like, I guess I like to play with things to make vagina not sexy. Oh, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so is that still porn if it's not sexy? If it's, not sexy, I, if it's I designed know. to turn you off? I think I think porn I think porn has to be mercantile mm -hmm. to be porn. You know, yeah. I think it's a, it's it's erotica mm -hmm. and then porn is the more kind of commercial mm -hmm. version of erotica. Yeah. That's... Well, this was not erotica okay. either. Okay. Yeah. yeah. What 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 was this it? This was just like more filling for the net. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um and then I started doing more work with like different art projects and I was using that name and eventually that name became associated with like winning civic awards in the city. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I can't go back to Karina Nathan now because Katrina Breeze has 
you know, has now has like clout. redeemed herself has, and has is been, this has, like serious yeah. character that is doing like pitch competitions and like, you know, working with water management and oh my. things like that. But I have a lot of other names that I use to escape that one. I like to use the name Karen Regis when I'm like at City Hall or like if I'm wearing like a bra and like an outfit that matches and that is like really for like getting government business done. I like to use that name. Regis sounds like someone you would yeah, take seriously. Yeah, right, right. It does yeah. not sound like a clown name. No. <laughs> so, and then sometimes I use Kevin Simons if I want them to think it's a man that's writing to them. <laughs> wow. Like and and you also have guy. you also have a name, the Mother Shucker. Oh yeah, I have yeah. that name. Mother Shucker of the Bearded Oysters. Yes. Which is also a vagina thing. It is. Right? Isn't it? <laughs> yes. Isn't it a, a vagina situation? Well, kind of. Okay. I mean, I think that it's really about pubic hair. And before recently, Carnival was very divided between men's crews and women's crews. And there weren't a lot of co-ed crews. And the co-ed crews that existed weren't very prestigious. And over time especially in the last couple of years, people are like single sex crews, not only is silly because we want to party with everybody, but also just like the, the binary is not the way that we should bring forward Mardi Gras in the future. And there's a lot of economic reasons why they just want to be inclusive of all genders. But at the time in, in 2004, when the Bearded Oysters were started, pretty much there was no space for women in the parades that were in their 20s. And I tried, I saw my first parade in 2003 carnival. And I was like, I need to do this. That's me. I need to be inside this. I want to do this the rest of my life. I'm totally in love. How do I become this job? What, what did you love most about it? I think I just love like the freedom and the fun of it. And I think like the vision that I have is this woman that was riding this Santa sleigh that was being pulled by other women and she was wearing like a hot pink corset and she was tossing, you know, junk to the crowd and everyone was just so happy and there were all these people dancing and it just seemed like the ultimate bliss to be able to experience that and then also to create it as an artist because there were so many levels of art that it was bringing together like costume and music and dance and performance and event planning. So I was totally taken by it. And when I contacted groups, I was told that I wasn't old enough to be in groups yet. I had to be 30 and I wasn't 30 yet. And so uh, they didn't, the, the women's crews only wanted women over 30 at that yeah. time? Why was that? Well, I mean, in my mind, you'd think that 20-year-old women would be popular in Carnival, <laughs> but it wasn't the case. There was a lot of sort of like society things going on about what your rank was or wh why they weren't included somehow. Uh, I mean, I think that in their mind, like younger people can be included by marching with college bands or something like that. And at the time, there were two other women's groups in the parades. 
the pussy footers and the camel toe steppers. And so in order to kind of like sneak us in, the bearded oysters seemed like the perfect vagina triumvirate that this could be. And we were accepted and the world was our oyster. And we have continued to parade now. I think we're going on our 16th year. So, so for the listener who is completely uninitiated to Mardi Gras, so Mardi Gras is a version of Carnival, which mm-hmm. exists around the world, and it's it's a Catholic, um, it's the last gasp before the abstention of Lent. I mm-hmm. had a friend who once described it that way, and I okay. love it, and I repeat it. But basically, it's the day that, and, and there's you know weeks leading up to it, but the day of Carnival or Mardi Gras is the day when society's turned on its head, you can do whatever you want because right after that, then you have Lent, and mm-hmm. Lent is when you when you give up things for God. I'm, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm going to add some things. Yes, there. please do. Yeah. So Carnival begins on the twelfth night of Christmas when oh. yes. Okay. Yeah. No, I know <laughs> that's a long Carnival because yeah. it goes all the way it's, until so February. Carnival. Are, well, it changes when it ends, but it always begins on January sixth, which is around the world a very important holiday. Some people call it the Epiphany. Some people call it Three Kings Day, but it's the day that the gift were brought to the baby Jesus. Oh, January 6th. So when mm-hmm. sweet baby Jesus was like 10, mm-hmm. 10 days old or something like that? Yes, I don't know. Old, more or less? 12th day 12th of Christmas. Day. Oh, okay. So, okay, cool, cool. Yeah. And then carnival is a season and the word carnival means goodbye to meat. Oh. Like carnivore. Oh. I'm glad we're getting this because mm-hmm. I... <laughs> there's some holes in my knowledge of this particular festival. So... During the carnival season, we are, I mean, there's everyone you could talk to could tell you a different legend of this, but I'll, I'll give you give mine. Me, give, me, give me your favorite. <laughs> give me the one that matters so, most to you. So during this season, we are fattening the feast. Mm. And the feast is of the flesh of all forms. So we are fattening the, the feast of indulgences which are you know sex drugs food maybe littering <laughs> okay and depending all on the what, beads? Is yeah that... but also other litter you know yeah. um it seems I like... like that littering is part of <laughs> fattening yeah. the feast yeah sometimes i have like people who have been to like a lot of really out there parties and like done sex and drugs and music and I'm like try littering like know, just open right? your hand and just drop that God, burners that's not <laughs> a way that we burners celebrate I know it's very ingrained in us to yeah know. I know it's it really like breaks a lot of like interior walls of, wow. of what is good and bad I like that this podcast has an invitation to litter on it mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only during these zones okay that will be cleaned up yeah um <laughs> Okay, go on. So it's the fattening. Yeah, it's the fattening. So there's a and lot of... And that's Fat Tuesday because of the fattening? Yeah. When the so, fattening has gotten the fattest? So, yes. We have... Okay. Com- well, there's a cow. Oh. Yeah. And the cow is now represented by a large float, like a paper mache float. And it's called the Boeuf Gras, which is the fat cow. And the Boeuf Gras is presented on Mardi Gras morning, but only as a float. People don't really eat it. And then, then in theory, that that is slaughtered, and that is the feast of Mardi Gras Day, which is Fat Tuesday. And then the day after Mardi Gras Day is Ash Wednesday. Everything ends for Mardi Gras. It is now like a very quiet, self-reflective, 
hungover, <laughs> low energy season of Lent. How long does Lent last? 40 days. Ooh, it's yeah. a long Lent. Mm-hmm. Always 40 days. Does that go until Easter? Easter? Well, I think it goes till... I, I'm not Catholic, so I'm not positive. But I, I think it goes till Good Friday and then Easter. Yeah. Uh, so, side note, Eamon's story. I did a TEDx talk at Burning Man in 2015. And the talk was called How Festivals Build Communities from Utopian Visions. And the, what the idea was is that essentially a festival is a type of utopia, Mm -hmm. but it's temporary and it's built to fail. Mm -hmm. And that by believing in the movement towards utopia, you actually create what you really want, which is community. Mm -hmm. Because utopia comes from the Latin utopos means no place, not something that's real. A utopia is not attainable. And if you were to attain a utopia, it would be a specific person's utopia, which wouldn't be other people's utopia. Mm -hmm. So it would actually be, you know, fascism, Mm -hmm. essentially, but that there's this idea that we strive towards a utopic vision, Mm -hmm. knowing it will end. Mm -hmm. And one of the examples that I used is Carnival, Mm -hmm. because the the, the utopian vision is that Fat Tuesday, is the time when society is turned on its head and and when the the masters serve the servants. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's only possible because right afterwards, the hammer comes down Mm -hmm. and we go into Lent and we lose it immediately. and I think at many festivals, that's kind of the case with Burning Man, for example. You go and you just like rage in the desert, but then it ends completely. And but then in, there's all that decompression and stuff. Yeah. Like we don't have any of that. Oh, you we don't just have decompression? go like Lent. You that's just Lent like, and you're done? Yeah, Lent is the decompression. Okay. Yeah. Well, in this. But then we have St. Patrick's Day, which is pretty heavy party holiday here too. Okay, but if St. Patrick's Day happens during Lent, do you get to still party? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's like a, a little reprieve from mm-hmm. the from Lent? Yeah. Well, th- the idea essentially with the talk, and it's come up a lot in terms of how I think about festivals, is what does it mean to strive together? Mm-hmm. And I think what's beautiful with, with something like Mardi Gras is, I mean, look at this studio out here. Mm-hmm. People together making art, mm-hmm. you know? And, and this comes up to this, the parade and the floats and this incredible celebration. But the real magic is the doing it together to get there. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is, is, is the magic. Mm-hmm. So we circle it back to the Bearded Oysters. Mm-hmm. You were just talking about giving women a reason to come back mm-hmm. to New Orleans to be part of the Bearded Oysters. Mm-hmm. And I think that that really speaks to the way that we put our hearts and souls into a festival mm-hmm. and the way we come together to create it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the Bearded Oysters. Mm-hmm. Um, you started the Bearded Oyster. Did you found the Bearded Oysters? Yes. And that was in a response to there not being crews for you to be a part of as a woman under 30? Yes. You wanted to create an under 30 women's crew. Mm-hmm. And why oysters? Well, originally we were going to be the Bearded Clams. And I'm from Boston, bearded clams, that's a thing, it made sense to me. And I went to a restaurant that was about a block from my house, and I asked them if they sold clams, and they said yes. And I said, can I get a bunch of clam shells from you guys after the restaurant closes tonight? And they said, yes, we will drop a bunch of bushels of shells at your house. And I was like, great. And I woke up in the morning, and my yard was covered in oyster shells. <laughs> And I was like, they're just fucking with you. No, they didn't. They just didn't. They didn't even really think about what clams were because they don't have clams here. So they just 
you know, brought the oyster shells. They assume that's what I meant. And I mean, I'm really glad we're the bearded oysters. I think there's a lot more fun that we've had with our name because of that. There's there's also been a lot of like connection to the land here because the land is is literally just oyster shells. That's what's under us is layers of oyster mm. shells. And this space, the river has like swung across here, you know, over tens of thousands of years and left shells. And we don't really have rocks here. If you start digging into the ground here, you're not going to find any rocks unless they were imported. You're going to find oyster shells and Mardi Gras beads. Uh And maybe marbles. There seems to be a lot of marbles. And like old pharmacy bottles. A lot of that. Wow. Those are a little more recent Mm -hmm. than the shells. (laughs) Yeah. Mardi Gras beads, huh? Mm-hmm. So you you created something called the Mardi Bra. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And when when was that? When did you in create 2003. the Mardi Bra? In 2003. In 2003. Oh, so before Katrina was mm-hmm. the Mardi Bra. And what is a Mardi Bra? A Mardi Bra was a cone-shaped bra that had Mardi Gras beads affixed to it. It was kind of Madonna-esque. Yeah. And I sold a lot of those, and they were doing really well. And... Then I started thinking about where the beads were from. And this documentary called Mardi Gras Made in China came out, I think, right in 2005, which was sort of bad timing for New Orleans because they couldn't really listen to it right then because they had so much with Katrina going on. But that message is slowly seeping in as time after time we're seeing the negative effects that the the beads are bringing here. Last year, flooding was a huge issue because of the beads, because they Hmm. slink into the drain system and they cause all this flooding. And tens of thousands of pounds of Mardi Gras beads were pulled from our drainage system, which like you talk about decadence, like we are literally drowning ourselves here because we have too many beads stuck in our trains. Where, where, Where do the beads go after Mardi Gras? Like... I guess they're swept through the streets and dumped somewhere? Or? Yeah, so s- probably probably about 10% make it into someone's house, and the rest gets swept up at the end of the parade. There are some so-called recycling efforts, which I don't really condone and I think are... Um, I really mixed feelings about recycling. I think recycling is a shame reduction technique that ultimately creates more waste because people think that it's possible to recycle it when the Mardi Gras beads aren't actually recyclable. Um, So they are collected and redistributed. And unfortunately, they're redistributed by people with intellectual disabilities through organizations that give those people jobs. And so we have a system here where we thought we solved the environmental crisis because we were able to redistribute these beads and give people jobs. But then the tests came out and the beads are highly toxic. The beads contain e-waste. And what e-waste is, is it's actually a toxic waste in our country. And when we ship our old electronics to China and they pulverize them and make them into new little pellets and then those pellets get sold at auctions and then those pellets get put into products and there's all different kinds of grades of 
pellets that can be sold and some of them are food grade and then way at the bottom end is Mardi Gras grade pellets. So I see Mardi Gras beads as sort of like the hot dogs of the plastics world. Um, it's just like the worst leftovers. And um, so e-waste e is very dangerous. It's very bad for like our hormone systems. And then they also have really high levels of lead. So the beads tested at as high as 29,864 parts per million when the legal limit for a lead product, for a children's product with lead is 90 parts per million. And there are bead distributors here that are not allowed to sell their beads to California. California has like already blocked certain companies that are here from being able to do business in California because of how bad these products are. So over the years, I've sort of taken a break from doing Mardi Bras because I don't feel right about the contents of the product anymore and shifted my efforts into building a conversation with my city here about what to do with the Mardi Gras beads. So you you created an organization, I Love Louisiana. Is I that Heart accurate? Louisiana. I Heart Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Pardon me. I Heart Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And the goal of this organization was to find a suitable substitute for Mardi Gras beads? Yes. Yeah. So I worked for about three years on that project and working with all kinds of Louisiana products. I assembled a team. We just search Louisiana for whatever was made here that could be used as throws. We had a lot of food products, coffee, pralines, like caramel corn and gumbo mix and sweet potato granola bars and all sorts of products that people could throw instead of beads. Eventually, though, I realized that it was about the show, not the throw. Mm, that the, explain that. That the alternative to a Mardi Gras bead shouldn't just be another bead. That it didn't have to be like, oh, we need to throw something at the people. What else can we throw? <laughs> so I try and um, promote the experience now. And I think that it, it's taken a while for people to understand why I don't want them to have beads in their hands during the parades. And there's a lot of broken hearts in my parades of people who spent a lot of money on beads and just envision that their experience is going to be, you know, making it rain for the crowds with their beads. But what we found is that when our participants, our members have something in their hands that the audience wants, then the audience says things like, gimme, gimme. And when we when nobody has anything in their hands, the audience says, you're beautiful and I love you. Mm. Yeah, and and you know the the common story of Mardi Gras is show us your breasts mm -hmm. and then you get beads, mm -hmm. right? And that how do you feel about that? Like, what's the? I mean, I feel like it's I like probably a, could guess how you feel about that, but well, tell, tell me like about it. Well, it's like a self fulfilling prophecy. Like, okay. if you believe that Mardi Gras is about coming to New Orleans and showing your breasts for beads, that experience will probably happen for you. But I haven't. It, I haven't seen that happen in a decade. And I I have shown my tits for beads, but it's more like a sarcastic joke to my friends. It's not like actually part of the culture here. You, you said you haven't seen that in a decade? Yeah. That's just that's just not what Mardi Gras is? Right. Because that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a lame thing. Mm -hmm. that, that thing is lame, but it is, 
as a cultural meme mm-hmm. for folks who are not familiar with New Orleans and Mardi Gras, it's like, oh yeah, there's beads. And I think like girls like show their tits and then they get more beads. And for some right. reason they want like lots and lots of beads and you like win if you have a lot of beads. There's mm-hmm. a sort of, yeah, it's a, it's a very it's a very reductive view mm-hmm. of this particular event, but it's definitely something that has persisted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the reason it's persisted is because people want to have that experience. And when they're trying to sort of put Mardi Gras into a box in their minds about like, what is it? That's a really easy way to see it is that it's this freedom, you know, that it's this playful freedom that's colorful and um, full of energy and sexuality and, and it is, but it's thousands of other things too. And I, and I blame our city too for promoting that idea because they do use a lot of bead imagery, like sort of stock photos. I had this campaign for a while where I was like just sending them like fresh stock photos of other things that weren't beads. But like, like what? Like, what like kind dancers, of beard yeah. oysters dancing or people in costumes or, the, or my, my floats or stuff like that just to change change what they're using you know like a lot like graphic designers have a lot of power in in how this festival is promoted and and viewed throughout the country there's a certain marketing there's this messaging that's sent out that attracts people who who want to have that experience and a lot of those people just want to have a experience and that's the one that they think they're supposed to come have so they do so Mardi Gras is, is really like a private event. It's not sponsored in any way. We don't have any sponsors. However, companies can use imagery from Mardi Gras to promote their liquor or whatever else on national commercials. So we don't really have a lot of control about the relationships we have with these corporations that are speaking on our behalf about what this religious ritual is. And instead, they're kind of marketing it as something that goes great with a side of alcohol. How do you support uh, a Mardi Gras crew? How, do, how, what, who pays for it? How does it work? The members pay for it. So there's all kinds of crews. There's people who are spending tens of thousands of dollars to parade there's people that are spending ten dollars to parade and one experience is not necessarily better than the other it's all about that that community that you're talking about that about who are you going to be with so i try and create experiences that are around three hundred dollars for people i feel like that's something that um we can do a lot with that money you know, we can create something that's super special for them. So like how many people are we talking about that would be contributing $300 each? Um, Some of them contribute, like let's say they might contribute their first year, but then there was like a less, like a price that's less. So like someone who contributed $300 10 years ago for Beard Oysters might only be paying like $50 this year. So we use, and every crew has different financial strategies about it. A lot of, So one of the things that we do that's very different is that we take their money and we make art with that money. We don't take the money and send all the money to China and bring them beats. (laughs) Um, So it, it funds the the artists that are going to be be creating the experiences for these people. And some crews, the members are creating more of it. Some crews are totally hands off in that 
in that the members are not in any way participating in their own costumes or floats or sounds like burning man Mm -hmm. it's like it's like burning man theme camps you know there's some where you know everybody pays dues Mm -hmm. some people pay and and around 300 dollars. like that's a that's a rate that's a good kind of due for a burning man camp Mm -hmm. and they're core people who spend a long time working on it and building it and getting it ready and then there's other camps that you just pay a bigger chunk of money and you show up and everything's done for you Mm -hmm. and i feel like those are the people who miss out on Mm -hmm. burning man do you is it that way with mardi gras do you feel like those people who who are just paying a bigger fee and having everything done for them do you feel like they're having perhaps less of an experience or not necessarily i think that a lot of people have are in multiple crews here so like i have one woman that's in my organizations that i think she's probably in five crews so even though she and actually, she contributes a lot of time. She, you know, she's really into this. <laughs> um, so I think that for some people, they they get what they need from almost like multiple theme camps or multiple crews or sub crews. And then I think there's people like, for example, like we allow people to fly in and meet us the day of and we give them that experience. And not every crew allows that. And some years I regret allowing it. Um, But for example, like someone who is getting off an airplane and getting in the parade with us is still having an intensely transformative experience. And they might not be able to connect to as many of the beautiful community aspects of it or let's say like the artistic learning of it but but they still they still get to have this incredibly transformative experience where I mean for some people like it's like going to to a burn like they leave my parades and are not the same people anymore let's talk about that what is transformative about being in a parade what is it that you feel in the experience makes someone different than they were before? And perhaps maybe if you have some examples of something, mm-hmm. of stories of, of that kind of transformation, because I'm definitely a junkie for transformative experiences. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and, I'm, and I'll be here for this pre-Mardi Gras time. Uh-huh. And what could, maybe a good way of asking this is, how can I prime myself for transformation uh-huh. through parades and Mardi Gras? And what, what might I expect to happen? Well, one of the phrases I learned on your podcast was permission engine. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So it's a permission engine. Okay. Yeah, it, I love that. Um, and I think that that play is really important. Like play is where, you know, children learn through play. Mm. And as adults, we can learn through play also and have fun. I think that being able to envision ourselves in new roles, you know, some of those roles might be real that you're actually like participating in event management and um, leadership, but it might just be like you're wearing a crown and you get to feel like you're part of the leadership and you still get to envision yourself that way and play with that and like connect with strangers, I think is really important. Like to just be going down the street and having people you've never met telling you that you're beautiful and that they love you is an amazing experience. I I love pride for that. 
Mm-hmm. Pride is a really, like we have a big pride in San Francisco, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I love telling people they're beautiful. And, mm-hmm. you know, especially like older folks who you can see them coming out of their shells from far, like people from all over coming mm-hmm. in. And and like the young, like kind of hip, like LGBTQ people mm-hmm. being like, you're so beautiful. And these kind of older people being like, I'm beautiful, like, mm-hmm. but, but like this, like, no, no, you're very beautiful like this. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly a profound and transformative yeah. experience. I think of, of parading as as very connected to pride mm. that like parading is the art of pride Ooh, and that's it, great that might even a, be the title yeah. <laughs> <laughs> parading is the art of pride is really nice and so much beyond you know like gay pride parades but like i mean if you think about like military pride parades you know like they like get out there they're like we're the military you know in all these countries and that's and they're um in preparation for this podcast, I actually looked up the etymology of the word parade. You have you have really shown up for this, by the way. I gotta <laughs> say, this is a couple of times you've mentioned like a knowledge of this show. Yeah. And I am honored that I, you took the time. Well, I you took the time as well. Well, yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, it's my job to take mm-hmm. the time. Like, this is you and your life, and I'm grateful. I so, know, but this okay. is like my eulogy. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's get it right. Okay, okay so, so give me the etymology of a parade. Um, The showing. Mm. yeah and what etymology wise is that like old english or i think like latin french okay romance Um, mm -hmm. so it's the showing you Mm. know it's the great showing it's a showing of our work it's the showing of our friendships Mm. it's the showing of our talents it's the showing showing of of our our city yeah showing of our city in a big Mm -hmm. way Yeah. yeah and um so i think that being able to show yourself that way with a group is such an amazing experience. Like I literally have people that sign up to be bearded oysters that do not come to the parades that do not live in this city Oh, interesting! because it's so important to them to be a part of something, even if they're not here to be a part of it, you know, like they want to be like a card carrying mm. member of like a real community. And, and that's part of what it gives them. I think that it, it brings a lot of self-esteem and mm. confidence mm. and there's with every bearded oyster there's at least one body image issue yeah, going I, on. I wanted to talk about that too because the bearded oysters is a lot about pubic hair mm-hmm. which is a certain kind of showing because in our culture pubic yeah. hair is you know it, it's gone off the off the map you know yeah. with pornography and that sort of thing pubic hair is not something that a lot of right. women have and i think a lot but of women have issues around yeah that. but it's also like not even our genitals like pretending that pubic hair is our vagina is like pretending that my eyebrows are my throat mm. yeah. <laughs> wow that's a so it's, it's all this very like topsy-turvy bizarre sexuality that like i mean The era that we began this was an era where women were losing their minds because of what they were being told about like where they should have hair and where they shouldn't. And, and men too. I mean, everyone was like, like giving themselves like staph infections and like, it was like getting dangerous out there with like all this shaving and lasering and sort of, uh, shaming of consumers to sell more products and then wrapping that up with sexuality and to say that like your pubic hair is your vagina and now you should shave it off (laughs) 
is just like such nonsense. So, so the bearded oysters is is kind of a, a reverse of that mm-hmm. and a prideful showing. Yeah. Of you know, and I think you wear merkins as well. We do wear merkins, and, and a merkin is kind of like a pubic hair wig. Yes. Those yes. things are hilarious and yes. great. Yeah, we had some merkins at a Burning Man camp a couple of years back. Nice. We had some some inth- merkin enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a pride and a showing, and you had just mentioned that that body image is mm-hmm. something that that you know has popped up for women who have participated. Yeah, there's I mean, this I've been doing this coming on 16 years and I have learned so much about beauty and attractiveness and body image and some of the things that I would love to share that I've learned is that learning to f- experience the beauty of things that are around you as part of your own beauty is the answer. Mm. That like when some woman who's 25 walks into my studio to try on her beard oyster outfit and she's got like perfect abs and just like this most perfect body that like her it's like mine like Mm. her beauty is my beauty and I mean what in that is not how it was when I was in high school (laughs) I mean that is that is so different to be able to like claim another woman's beauty and then and then also to see how on the parade route, it's not about being small, it's about being big. Mm. And that also like a lot of people think about like what's unattractive about their body. Like it's like some one inch square on their thigh or something that's like all wrong. And what I've learned through parading is that we're not attracted to things that are unattractive. Things that are unattractive are non-attractive on a parade route. They do not be seen. Only what's attractive is seen. Like what is catching the eye, what people want to see. And that is just like such a beautiful experience to be able to like attract for what is attractive. I did not pack for Mardi Gras. Mm-hmm. So I had I, w- I was doing this wilderness first responder training in mm-hmm. Colorado and then coming here and it's just all sorts of things. And I was really nervous about not having enough warm clothes. So I didn't bring a sparkly hat for the Mad Hatter parade. Mm-hmm. I didn't bring all of my sort of like kingly outlandish things. And mm-hmm. I'm feeling pretty bad about it. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I would feel badly about it because I sort of had this idea where I'll go and I'll buy new things. Mm-hmm. And But now that we're here, I wish I had my elaborate Burning Man closet so mm-hmm. I could piece together the perfect thing for the ball, the mm-hmm. perfect thing for the parade. And it's kind of, you're talking about um, anxiety about body image. And I understand that this is like, you know, tiny fiddle for me on this mm-hmm. one, but I'm having anxiety about my costuming. Mm-hmm. Um, so or what... maybe it's about your identity. <sighs> maybe. Maybe it's about that you know that you're such a party prince and you don't want people to miss it. <laughs> <sighs> well, this is my first Mardi Gras. Like I can't, you know, I, I've, I've done a number of festivals mm-hmm. where I'm going to go all the way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how much color can I get on my body during Holy mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever it is. Um, I have a majestic lion. Oh, you'd love my bike, by the way. My Burning Man bike is a lion. Mm. You know those, there's like a raver backpack that looks like a lion mm-hmm. face. So um, an artist friend of mine built that into like a big majestic lion head uh-huh. and furred my bike. So I like ride this majestic nice. fat tire bike mm-hmm. at Burning Man that's a lion. But, uh, and you don't have it now. I don't have it now. <laughs> I don't have it now. So I guess the question is... It will happen. Well, yeah. So what do I do? So like, 
So as unusual for me, here I am in this environment that that invites us to parade and mm-hmm. to show, and I am, God, I am showy, mm-hmm. but I don't have anything. Mm-hmm. Where do I go? Well, what do I buy? Who do I things. go see? You need a uniform. You don't oh. need a costume. Okay. That's, That's a great starting thing. place. Where do I go to get this uniform? Well, if you come with us, we have uniforms. Okay. Like, I have like hundreds of costumes in here. And um, so the Beard Oysters has, we wear white and silver. And I have like a whole wardrobe of white and silver. And I'm accustomed to costuming people. Um, and that, that sounds like that's an invitation. Is that an invitation? If you'll come, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, let's okay. go. Let's so <laughs> Saturday. So Saturday. At five. At five. Mad Hatter's um, Parade. The Mad Hatter's Parade. Mm-hmm. And, and you do you have extra Mad Hats? They're not very mad. They're very... I think that one thing that you'll learn about Carnival parading is that it's not that wild. Oh, no? It's very controlled. It In some ways, it might be one of the most controlled environments that you're ever in. If you think about it, really? like you've never, you've probably never been in an environment where you're not allowed to talk to each other. You're not allowed to talk to each other? <laughs> not really. You're supposed to be doing your action. Your so ac- like, what is your so action? So like with the Beard Oysters, they're dancing and they okay. have a very specific like choreography. So for them, they have very specific things they're wearing. It's in a certain space. The music is already determined for them. The, the whole experience is very controlled and they are giving their, well, they're giving their money and their trust and trusting that if they follow me, I will give them the experience that they want with this. And, and okay, so this is really interesting. I had no idea. So the, the audience watching the parade, obviously mm-hmm. they just do whatever they want and they're just wild and having a good time, mm-hmm. right? So that's pretty, pretty free. Um, or is that, or is there some expected behaviors for the so audience? So well? I think you want to go to the balls. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so like the the big parades are like thinking about Disney World. Yeah, you know, like it's it's very big budget. It's a big show, but then the balls are when people get to be more free, and some of the balls are essentially debutante balls and. Are, I want to be a debutante. No, you won't be invited to those. Oh. You don't have anything to wear, and I, I can't know. help I don't, you. <laughs> I don't have anything to wear, and I, I have this mustache. Yeah. And so some of them are, if you saw them, it would look like uh, the Queen of England was ca- conducting a ritual. And then some of them are these like wild masquerade balls with drugs and fun and okay so let's go to that one yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) i think i think i'm starting to understand like where what beaded curtain i need to pull back to enter my mardi gras experience one of the best ways i heard carnival described was by this local writer chris rose and he said that carnival is a thousand ring circus and Mm. every demographic here has their moment of the showing so we have, let's say, like, we have different ethnic communities that present carnival in different ways. So, like, there's, um, there's like, uh, traditional black carnival things. There's, within that, there's things like the Mardi Gras Indians, which are... I saw them at Jazz Af- Fest, yeah. Like, African-American plus Native American concepts. There's French ideas. There's, I mean, some of what you'll see, you might just be like, is that the KKK parading? <laughs> Um, really yeah i mean it's it's like it's all over the place like every demographic is there a kkk parade i feel like no but it's 2020 there should not be that it's 
I feel like you should see it and you tell me. Okay. They're not, they're, well, first off, someone can be in, a K, in the KKK and also be in a parade. Okay. And if enough of them were there. Then it's a KKK <laughs> parade? Well, it's, Sheesh. it looks like it. it. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends who you talk to about what's going on in it, but they definitely have their big cone hats and, Yikes. um, but they wear like purple instead of white. Yeah, still. And so, like I'm saying, like there are all these different ways to experience it and all these different demographics, like every single one of them is gonna be giving a showing. And some of them have parades, some of them have parades and balls, and some of them just have balls. So parades are very expensive to produce. They're very inclusive of the public. If you wanted to have an event with your crew that was more exclusive and exclusive for the purposes of being able to do certain things within that environment, um, you might have a very exclusive ball, um, which is very common here. I want to go to like the eyes wide shut ball. I want to go to like the you know, creepy, raunchy, uh-huh. over-the-top, druggy, weird. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> it's kind of toned down because of cell phone cameras. Oh, yeah. And, like, I wish that at these parties they would have a cell phone check, and I think that things would be a lot more fun. But it seems like people are more interested in getting photos to put on Instagram than they are in having an orgy that nobody knows about <laughs> and has no hashtags. Oh, man. That's, there's got to be an orgy nobody knows about. <laughs> yeah. And then I got to find the person who knows about it. Right. Yeah. Don't put it online. Okay. Yeah. No, it, it won't be on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Trust me. You, dear listener, imagine that I have stumbled upon some Mardi Gras orgy and just can't tell you. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know. Yeah. That seems. <laughs> and then within the orgies, like, like what orgy is it? You know, I mean, there's so many. I don't want to go to the KKK orgy. No, don't, don't. (laughs) Old, not that old is bad, but like gross old. You know, yeah, Yeah. you know, like uh, Mm -hmm. old balls. Let's hope they're all old. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right, and sort of passing on. Yeah, I just, yeah, I just had this image of old balls. I don't know how our podcast (laughs) has gotten to an old ball KKK orgy. Mm -hmm. That's pretty out there. This might be the most out there topically. One of my goals was to be the funniest person you ever had on your show. Really? Yeah. Really? How Nicely am I doing? done. You're doing really good. You're yeah. doing really okay. good. Well, you know, it's a it's a it's a two person <laughs> sport, the funniness. Uh-huh. So I think we're building on it. Good. But I think like old balls at a KKK orgy mm-hmm. is like Right. That's pretty fucking out there mm-hmm. for this show. You know, I'm earning my explicit notice on Spotify. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Yikes. Okay, let's talk about <laughs> transgender stuff. Okay. Um, because, you know, I, I I have a certain love of of gender play. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that's cool with the Bearded Oysters is the idea that there's a sort of like, in its very name and identity, there feels to be a kind of trans inclusivity. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the case? Has that been the case with the parade? Is there, are there trans parades? Has, has the transgender movement been represented in Mardi Gras? Hmm. I would say like, well, there's a lot of clowning in Carnival. There's like, there's things like drag, for Mm. example, that I don't think represent the transgender community. 
And they're like, we have had transgender people in our group. I, it, it hasn't always been great for them. Interesting. Because they're still the audience. Mm. And the audience is made up of everybody. Mm. And the audience sometimes will just straight up point at someone and tell their kids something about it. And parading can be really complicated emotionally because you're sharing ex you're sharing yourself with thousands of people and some of those people are going to be really kind and even if a thousand people are so kind and then one old nasty grandma says something bad you know it can just be so heartbreaking and i i guess i i i welcome all people to come be beard oysters and with my other group colossus I I wish I could protect them more from the audience. Mm. Yeah. And I think that as as time goes on, as things shift culturally, it's going to be easier and easier, but every time I walk down the parade route, someone says something nasty to me too, and it's really hard to recover from that in 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 dancing, in sharing so much of yourself with the public. Um, and, you know, like I, I hope to make it easier for more people to be included in Carnival and for them to have a good time while they do it. Um, I think that the, the way that, that we see transgender is, is shifting a lot. There, like there's, what that meant 10 years ago and there's what it will mean 10 years from now. And we're not really at like a, f a final answer yet about society and, and what it means. And I think that there's, there's still a lot of people that are full of hate and, and will express hate outwardly towards others. I, I mean, it, it's horrible like to bring someone out on a parade route and they look so beautiful and then something like that happens and and then they never want to parade again have, have you had that experience yeah with people you brought out yeah i mean it's sad like that that's that's the case i mean it, it parading is a very like beautiful thing and it's very transformative but it also involves inclusivity of everybody that's there. Hmm. It's funny how one comment can just reverberate, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that for a lot of folks in the world of art and entertainment and festivals and parades and that mm -hmm. sort of thing, we, we want to show ourselves and feel beautiful, mm -hmm. you know, and feel alive. And, and I think a lot of people certainly myself included, who don these amazing costumes and identities mm -hmm. are also in a balancing act around mental health. Mm -hmm. You know, like there are times when I feel so alive and so willing to share. And there are times when I'm so sensitive mm -hmm. and so scared, mm -hmm. you know, and 
I want Mardi Gras to fall on a day where I feel big. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, like you it's know? gonna happen and yeah. whatever mood you're in that day, it happens. I think that one of the things that sets me apart and like why I'm a professional is that I usually can recover from the comments pretty quick. Mm. Um, and I can usually tune it out when it's disruptive. Yeah. But it's hard. I mean, it's it's an emotional roller coaster to be in a parade route. It's it can be a very dangerous environment. How long does a parade route last? Like how how long are you on a parade route? Up to about five and a half miles. Okay. And that how long about does that about like two the, and the, a half the, hours? The, the one on, on Saturday that mm-hmm. Marie and I will be joining <laughs> okay. you on. Um, um, that one is three and a half miles. Okay. So mm-hmm. how long will we be parading and doing it will routines? take about two hours i think okay yeah cool and do we get to have cool photos to put on instagram Is yes that, okay yeah <laughs> you know i just wonder you know yeah i, just, I uh all I, the I, hashtags I, I, go I, for I it like putting cool photos on instagram <laughs> i know it's i know we're supposed to be more mature than that but i love it it's okay yeah I like <laughs> cool. um but i don't want to leave this the tone of this moment because mm-hmm. i think it it's a nice bridge and segue to one of the things that I wanted to discuss today with you mm-hmm. because your activism work has taken a whole new energy and agenda and meaning. Mm-hmm. And and I think that, you know, if we're going to talk about this eulogy, mm-hmm. if we're going to talk about your life and your efforts and what you've put your energy into, then then we got to talk about Donna's Law. Yeah. Um, and just to open up that door, mm-hmm. I'm just going to ask you, how would you like to talk about this on this podcast today? What feels safe and warm? And Well, the thing I hate the most is before I talk about it, when people say trigger warning. Oh, I yeah, think, we don't, we don't do think, that on this show. I think trigger yeah. warning is like the worst thing to say to gun violence victims. <laughs> mm. Okay, yeah, well, so we... So w- that's, that's how we shouldn't start okay. it. Okay, so I know how we shouldn't start it. <laughs> yeah, no, I was, I'm, that wasn't my instinct. But my instinct was to it's say... It's a little weird when people are like, like before I'll talk and then people are like trigger warning and I'm like, oh God. <laughs> yeah, I, okay. Well, we won't do that. Mm-hmm. And we're welcome to keep as much humor in this. I just, oh, good. but I, w- I wanted to invite, sure. um, I wanted to invite you to let me know how you want to have this conversation. Sure. Because, I mean, I can just say things. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. That's, that's how most conversations <laughs> yeah. go. So I'll know. say things, then you say things. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, in, 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 just to, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> trying to be helpful in some yeah. way. <laughs> but yeah, um, let's 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 talk about let's talk about gun violence. Yeah. So my mom uh, was a huge part of the Beer Doisters. Part of why I created an organization that was so age inclusive was that mm-hmm. I could mm-hmm. also bring her on the other end of that age spectrum into our group, and she was the grandmother shucker of our crew. Oh yeah, and um, really loved to dance and. Just everything we were doing, we were doing because I was her daughter and this was her dream also. Um, And she battled bipolar and the, I guess like the side effects of of different medications that um, were introduced to her because of that. And in June of 2018, she opened her cell phone and she typed in the words gun stores, New Orleans and hit directions and drove to a gun store that was three miles away. And even though she had never owned a gun or touched a gun in her life, um, was sold a gun and she took that gun to 
the tree of life here at uh, Audubon Park and shot herself. And this all happened very fast in our family. And the after that happened, I just I couldn't believe that it was so easy to buy a gun. It was it was just one phone search away for all of us to be able to have a gun in our hands and and be able to just you know change life on a dime that way. Um, so the the day after she died, I posted on Facebook and I um, told everyone that my mom had shot herself and what had happened and I said that we needed to do better for people and empower them to protect themselves from suicide. And when I Googled guns and suicide after her death, I learned that two thirds of gun deaths are suicides. And that is a huge number. Less than 1% of of gun deaths are mass shootings. And most of those mass shootings actually do involve suicide. And so the gun epidemic is really a, a, an unspoken about suicide epidemic. And I decided right away that I was going to be proud of my mom, that mm. I wasn't going to mm. like lie about it, mm. that I was just going to be proud of her. And, um, and I do feel that what she did was very like brave and empowered. And I'm sorry for what the results are, um, but I am proud of her for for everything. And um, in the process of speaking up about it, a lot of people started kind of coming out of the woodwork about their own suicidal issues in their families and their own fears about buying guns um, here. And there's also just a lot of guns here, a lot of unlocked guns. And it's it's hard for people in other parts of the country that that have pretty solid gun legislation to even comprehend how loose the gun laws here are in Louisiana. But pretty much anyone can buy a gun. You do not need to buy a gun at a store. You do not need to buy a gun from a licensed dealer. Um, you can give someone a gun as a present. It's, it's very accessible and it is a huge cause of death here. So I sort of leveraged my artistic fame and got the newspapers involved here and was able to eventually connect with some amazing partners in creating Donna's Law and including the University of Alabama Law School um, has been a huge support. And a woman by the name of Victoria Coy has helped me a ton. I actually met her years ago when she applied to be a bearded oyster and then later on became a big force in the gun violence uh, prevention movement here. Um, so I knew who to call because I had built that community. Um, and so Donna's Law is a legislation that enables people to opt out of their ability to purchase a gun. Um, so it's totally voluntary. It doesn't infringe on anyone's Second Amendment rights, and it's reversible. So people who feel that they just don't feel stable enough to have access to guns in, in the way that the guns are here in Louisiana can, would be able to opt out. And... We 
I was able to get the um, bill into the the legislative session last year in Louisiana, and it was it did not move forward. Although we might try again this year, but in the process, I've been learning about how legislation works, and I've been trying to approach it like an art project and take the talents that I have and put it into um, the gun violence movement. Um, one of the the first women that I met in in this was a woman by the name of Donna Dees who organized the Million Mom March in DC some years back and is a huge organizer for gun violence. And when I said to her, I don't know if, if I have any skills for this, and she said, we need some parade makers. Mm. So I think whatever your skills are, you might not even realize how um, valuable they can be in a movement. One thing I've noticed about the gun violence prevention movement is there aren't a lot of creatives there. And when I was at the legislature, like there's not a lot of creatives there either. And, and it's so important to put our creativity into these, into these new venues. I've, I found a lot of radical communities in my life. I'm like constantly searching for different organizations, like, you know, first with Mardi Gras and with Burning Man. And I've been a lot with the radical fairies and I've always been trying to find these, these groups to do radical work. And the funny thing now is like now sort of, these people are the Republicans, you mm. know, like that, that these are the people I'm sitting with and that I'm able to, um, you know, put on a bra and some pearls. And, and are like, you, are you Regis when you do that? <laughs> well, I'm still Katrina Breeze, which is really weird. Yeah. And even when they like announced me at the legislature, they announced me as Katrina Breeze, which felt really weird. And, some of the comments that happen on the internet when people are criticizing the legislations that I'm creating is they just like scream into the internet that I'm not a real person and that this is all made up and Katrina Breeze is a fake name and and that I'm a plant in the in the um, gun legislation world and it is kind of funny to to almost be this like fake person doing this like really serious work but still bringing who I am into that space and and trying to enjoy it because it's really serious work and it could be really depressing but I try and approach it like it's an art project and much like a parade where in a parade you're combining all these art forms like costume and dance and performance and events and recruiting and all these things and marketing and communications and legislation is so much like that. Like some, sometimes I'll just like print out the bill that we created and like collage it and like do different things with it you know just to like rethink about it and um think about like who can I connect with next that that can make this happen and and the work that I'm doing now with it is really just about inspiring others to to find sponsors in their states and you know stick with it and last week in Virginia the bill passed um, in the Virginia Senate and it's about to go to the Virginia House and then is expected to be signed by the governor soon. Oh, and it's called Donna's Law there? It's called SB 436. So Donna's Law. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, so Donna's Law. And yeah. 
Wow. And, you know, that's a beautiful return to the opening of this conversation, Mm -hmm. you know, about how we dance with death Mm -hmm. and about how to create to how to create from mm-hmm. loss and to be close to life through death. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you're saying in the gun violence movement, you're not seeing a lot of creatives. And that seems to be where where we need to bring that second line for mm-hmm. those for those people who are grieving those deaths. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just really beautiful and, and, and quite exemplary the way that you've approached this. Thank you. Yeah, that's so cool. I, I wanted to bring up something too on the subject of death and, and your mother's passing. I'm aware that you are not a big fan of the funeral rigmarole, Mm -hmm. embalming and Mm -hmm. and these sorts of things, (laughs) and that you actually have a creative response to death Mm -hmm. yourself, and you've actually created these shrouds. Yeah, they're, well, um, fantastic caskets. Fantastic (laughs) caskets. Yeah, 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 yeah. And some of the ones I've been doing are fabric-based. The ones that you saw online that are fabric were created in Appalachia a couple years ago. And my goal with the project was to create a sewing pattern that pretty much like an elderly woman could create a casket for her husband through using the fabrics that are in the house and without uh, incurring any costs. Um, Because the cost of a funeral can be absolutely devastating mm -hmm. for... Yeah. For a poor family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, considering most people in America have less than zero dollars, this is a huge cost to people. I think like like it's probably like seventy seven to ten thousand dollars that people are spending of which is really they're not spending it, they're gaining debt is actually how it's happening more often than not. So to pass on debt to your loved ones to for like for the exchange of being given a ritual that perhaps is broken. For my mom's funeral, I did not use one of the caskets. Uh, My mom was cremated. I did do an event a year after her death that I I hope other people will use this tradition in their lives too. And I created a lemonade party at the site of her death a year after her death. And sort of this feeling of um, when life gives you gives you lemons, make lemonade, and I just brought everyone together, and we had lemonade under the tree, and sort of like talked about the victories that we've had with Donna's Law, and and also just coming together again and showing the the success that we've had as as being a community together, and and helping each other get through this, and also my mom was very much my peer and she didn't have a separate friend group. And I'm really grateful that all my friends down here were really close to my mom. And so for them also, it was a great loss. And it was um, just like so great for me to be able to be protected and loved by all those people. So a lemonade party, I think, is a really great alternative to an expensive funeral. I love love that. You could have like different kinds of lemonade. People can bring their own lemonade. I did buy like a lemon-themed dress. And I think I might have a lemonade party again this year. It was a really sweet event. There's one more thing in in terms of death that you brought up on Begetz's podcast, which is a friend of yours passed away. And you had the responsibility of washing the body. Mm-hmm. And the way you described that on his podcast, I know that I'm kind of like picking from uh-huh. his podcast <laughs> okay. to like get on this one, but you were talking about washing a body mm-hmm. and 
I was wondering if you could just briefly describe what that experience is like because I found it completely captivating to listen to. Yeah, it's like doing acid with God. It is yeah. so incredible. Um, it, I I uh, washed the body for a cousin of mine that I had cared for who died of cancer and um, I had washed her body many times when she was alive and it seemed very strange to not wash it that time and I had spent a lot of time protecting her and her body and to hand her body off to the funeral home, which at the time I very much envisioned as being like the Adams family. <laughs> mm, yeah. Kind of creepy. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know, like weird perversions or something, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. That's not how I remember the Adams <laughs> no, family, the Adams but... <laughs> family, but like, you know, sort of like as my imagination was like going, like, how do I feel about the funeral industry? And like, um, how impersonal. Um, yeah. And, um, so I I chose to to do that myself with a another friend of hers and it I was really scared. I had like so many nightmares for like I decided way in advance that I was going to do it and I knew that she was going to be dying soon and so for weeks I kind of like wrestled with whether I was going to be like capable of doing this and whether it was going to be traumatic for me or was it going to be good for me and I went online and everyone was like oh it's going to be a, the best you're going to want to do it all the time <laughs> washing a, a dead body yeah. is going to be the best and yeah. you want to do it all the time yeah <laughs> wow okay um so then I felt pretty confident about it and when I sort of like received the body at the funeral home. There was this really beautiful young blonde woman that came into the room with me. And I thought that she was maybe like the secretary or something like that. And she said that she was the funeral director. And I was really surprised that this beautiful woman would sort of be like in this space where her beauty wasn't being capitalized on I guess and she told me that she her mother had died when she was young and that she chose to wash the body and that after that she decided that that's what she wanted to do forever um, was have that experience and it's this amazing experience of trust because it's like you have this person who's beyond unconscious you know like they've really left this vessel and your job is to like kind of like clean it up um what like after their soul has left and at first the body is very cold because it's been in refrigeration and as you're washing it it actually like feels like it's getting warmer and it has this feeling like it's coming back to life and when you're washing the body it's not like you put it on the table and squirt a hose at it. Like you actually have to lift the body to wash it. And when you do, you're you're pulling their chest against your chest and you're like hugging this dead person and holding them. And they're all like slippery. So you have to hold them so tight. And at first they're very stiff and then they sort of loosen up to you and you have like, I mean, I was supervised, so I couldn't do anything bad. But like you have this feeling of like, I could do anything to this body and I'm choosing to do these good things to it. Like I'm choosing to show this body love and I'm worthy of the trust that this person has given me. 
and um i totally recommend it i it mean sound, it sounds so deeply intimate it is it's so beautiful and when my mom died i really like wrestled about whether to do it for her or not because she had shot herself in the head and it it was really hard to like decide mm. not to do it mm. um, yeah, with a wound like that though that that seems like that would be so 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 painful yeah i just felt like it was probably not the time to choose it and also i don't think my mom would necessarily wanted me to do that i think that she'd probably want me to opt out on that one but yeah i think that the that being near death and participating in in analyzing funeral rituals and building funeral rituals and building funeral products has enriched my life so much and made me really fearless about about like the activism work I'm doing and the art I'm doing and um very much like grateful to be alive and be able to do these things Mm. You know, and that actually kind of leads really well into how I wanted to close this particular part of the conversation, which is that, so I, my family suffers from mental health challenges, mm -hmm. you know, depression to, you know, both sides, mm -hmm. it's a part of what it means for me to live. And I've actually had my psychiatrist on one of these, mm -hmm. one of my podcasts, you know, like it's, it's important to me to talk about it and to mm -hmm. be with it. And, and, to, you know, we have to talk about it because mm -hmm. that's, first of all, that's one of the main ways that we're able to get some relief and some comfort. And mm -hmm. then, you know, and also we just want to be connected. And mm -hmm. so I was curious, you know, you were talking about your mother suffering from mental health challenges that ultimately led to her taking her life. My presumption is that you've had some of those challenges yourself mm -hmm. um, just based on my own experience and my own relationship mm -hmm. to my family yeah and and at the same time you're an extremely fierce person you know in terms of but your that's activism how they always are well, that, and that's well <laughs> yeah okay fair but you must have some techniques mm -hmm. and some some rituals and some ways that you balance mm -hmm. out the highs and the lows and your ability to serve and how do you fuel yourself in this activism? Where do you go when you're in your lows? And mm -hmm. what is your relationship like to yourself in the context of mental health mm -hmm. as a leader and as a leader, you know, in this conversation about gun violence now? Mm -hmm. How are you taking care of yourself? I spend a lot of time like quiet every day. I probably spend about eight hours a day by myself just like processing things. Mm. Um I get a lot of therapy. I have a lot of great friends. At at times, I've used microdosing to. Oh, cool. Um, what what have you? What do you microdose? Mushrooms. Yeah. I I've tried it with LSD, but it it just wasn't the right match for me. I I was going through like so much therapy after my mom died, and and I was being successful, and I wasn't like you know, messing up in my life or anything. But I started feeling more and more anxiety and a lot of just like inability to have joy anymore. Mm. And I had this gorgeous life that's like filled with parades and costumes and beautiful people and all these like fun things and kind of like whatever I can dream up in a day is like what we're gonna be doing. And to not be able to feel any joy from from that work was really devastating and also feeling like more and more disconnected from other people and felt like I was 
doing all the right things. Like I was exercising and turning off the screen and, you know, holding good, space. Good diet. And good diet. Yeah, that's, diet, that's a big one. Everything. And, and I was like doing the work and I had the sort of the privilege to be able to have the resources to do that work, to have counselors and therapists and different kinds of alternative therapies and stuff like that. And, and I felt like that, I, I wasn't able to catch up in my life anymore, that all these things were making me better, but it was at like one mile per hour. Mm. And that by the time I had any progress with anything, something else would like happen in my life that would just like knock me down. And, and it, I just really got to the point where I felt like this is getting dangerous, that there's only gonna be so many days where I feel this low before I kill myself. And putting myself in, in that situation or allowing myself to stay in that situation was not how I want to be making decisions about my health. And at that point, I started doing a lot of research about well, all kinds of therapies, like I just wanted to feel better. And I thought about antidepressants and I went to a psychiatrist and talked to them about antidepressants and I just didn't feel like it was right for me. And I felt that that the the trauma of my mom's death had actually kind of like turned on certain genes for me mm. that were very like depressing like it was like I didn't have mental health issues before my mom died and then by her dying it was like oh now I want to kill myself you know and, and I think that's quite common yeah that there's a certain contagious quality of yeah. suicide and then and then also having my life be like so detached and not joyous and like not being able to really even even like see colors anymore. Like it just felt like. Oh yeah, that's that's a marker of depression when yeah. the colors shift. Yeah. Yeah. If I have a, if I have a, any kind of depressive episode, I can I can physically see a change. Mm -hmm. Ah, the color thing is so weird. Yeah. Ugh. And um, so at that point, I felt like I needed some kind of chemical shift in my brain in order to be able to like. I don't know, survive, to thrive, to get my life back, to continue my life, that there was actually like a chemical change that had to happen, that there wasn't going to be just this endless amount of like eating vegan and gratitude journaling and that somehow one day it was going to work. That doesn't sound like <laughs> that's the road to freedom is eating vegan and gratitude journaling. Not, not to talk any vegans, but you know, it yeah. does seem like a lot of uh, mm -hmm. putting a lot in and if you're not getting a lot out, then yeah. that's hard. So I was, I was really blessed that a friend of mine was able to like teach me about microdosing and uh, share that with me and it's really been a miracle like I I feel like I'm able to give more I feel like the world is luckier that I took them um, that I'm a better friend that I'm more excited about my work that I'm able to be a parade producer again I mean it's it's really hard to be a parade producer when you're depressed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, unless it, unless it's a pity parade. Right. You yeah. Know? <laughs> you could do a pity parade. Right. I'd do a pity parade. Yeah. You know, what, what's the, the clown? There's a clown that it's like, 
Oh, I can't remember his name. He says Pity Party is part of his clown name. It's something mm-hmm. something's Pity Party. Mm-hmm. I wish I had it off the top of my head because it's pretty mm-hmm. funny. But yeah, you can't be. Yeah, you need you need a little something, and it's different if it's coming from a mushroom mm-hmm. than if it's coming from a collection of chemicals from a, a big pharma company. Mm-hmm. You know, not to knock yeah. those if you need them, but like I I actually so I just started working for an organization that is that is doing data analysis for psychedelic therapy. And I believe deeply in psychedelic therapy. I really, really think it helps us get out of... My my my, my one is ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. Ayahuasca is the big one for me to mm-hmm. help me kind of break out of those mental loops and, mm-hmm. and give me that bright, shining something to work for and kind of ring out or puke out the mm-hmm. sort of like mucky muck that I've allowed myself to submerge in mm-hmm. um, has been a big one. But I'm so happy to hear that you found something that mm-hmm. has opened up perspective and allowed your brain to function in a more open way because to lose a parent mm-hmm. in that way mm-hmm. is devastating, mm-hmm. you know? And and then to like, as you're saying, you're like gratitude journal, you know, mm-hmm. doing all the things and how frustrating to be doing all the things day after day. And then to find something mm-hmm. that is actually really changing it. I like, feel like that's beautiful. the microdosing enabled the work to work. Oh, okay. And before that, I doing the work and not having results from it was so depressing. Mm, yeah, just reinforcing that. Yeah. yeah. Um and I'm I'm just like so grateful I found that. I'm I wish that I wish that more people had access to the tools that they need to empower themselves about mental health. I mean, I think that for in a in our family, my mom was the fourth suicide, and my mom's suicide was very much brought on by an interaction with an antidepressant. And so mm. when I, as much as I wanted there to be a pill that could make me feel better, it was so frightening to me to know that one of the side effects of antidepressants can be suicide, and and that it can like make someone just like, leap into that and so it was it was too frightening for me to try that i i do have a lot of friends that i'm grateful have have found the right match with their doctors to you know make their work work also (sighs) yeah i i am we have we have something coming up called Thank You Plant Medicine. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with this? No. Okay, so it's on February twentieth. It and I say we, I mean sort of the psychedelic community generally, and and sort of everyone who cares about this sort of thing. There's a day of coming out on February twentieth called be Thank parading. You Plant Medicine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and perhaps that's something to bring into the spirit of that parade. Mm, you know, and yeah. Thank You Plant Medicine is essentially a day that you know around the world people are going to publicly declare the ways that plant medicine has been healing for them. Um, And it's a grassroots organization, you know, people in the psychedelic community, there's, we have a lot of different kind of touch points with each other. And Mm -hmm. it sort of started rolling out in such a way that people are getting on board. And um, yeah, when you're The whole like coming out of it is really complicated. Mm, Yeah. I mean, a lot of like the, the world that I live in down here in Louisiana, you know, talking to republicans about gun legislation yeah. reform and it's just we just can't talk like that <laughs> i know we just can't be talking about these about right. magic mushrooms yeah it's I, one thing i learned about like being political is that like you can only really talk about one issue 
like at a time, you know, that I can't talk about sort of like reform of drug laws and reform of gun laws, that that's too much of a message that I, I'll lose people, you know, in in trying to get partners for certain things. And, well, and, and I'm not saying that you need to have a coming out mm-hmm. about this. I want but, to. <laughs> well, but you know, I mean, I think that you're parading on that day. Uh-huh. So, you know, mm-hmm. you can have that parade. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be changing your profile picture on Facebook, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of like what most people are like, oh, I'll change my profile picture. That's how I'm contributing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that you just just thinking about the timing of these things and what we're talking about today, it's perhaps that can just be part of your parade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have found that like when I have been out about it, I'm surprised how many other people are doing it. And yeah. I think that's really important to learn. The world is definitely changing mm-hmm. as far as that's concerned. I mean, decriminalization in Denver and Santa Cruz and Oakland mm-hmm. and things are, things are starting to move. And uh, we need it. We yeah. need it. There's such a profound epidemic of of mental health challenges, mm-hmm. and um, and also like like for me, it was a lot about trauma and antidepressants didn't necessarily like change trauma in my body, and the like microdosing really did enable me to like. M- utilize parts of my brain that were no longer just the fear-based ones Mm. it felt like before it felt like every decision i was making was just from this like little tiny piece of my brain that was totally afraid of the world and at times like even i mean when i when i look back on like oh it was so brave to go create you know gun legislation in louisiana and and part of me feels like well maybe i was just really suicidal you know like maybe there's like sort of this line of like, well, if you're feeling suicidal, you might as well just do whatever you want, you know, and like create as much positive impact as you can and like not worry so much about like the risk or loss, you know, and and there was a period of time where I, I was propelled and successful with that mentality. And then eventually the trauma became anxiety and really shut me down. You know, like I went from someone who's, just able to start a parade and march in front of 10,000 people to someone that like just thinking about getting in my car feels like I'm choking because my throat is closing and I'm having anxiety. It's, it was, it was so crippling physically. Um, and it, it really just got to the point where it was like, Oh, I, I can't, I can't have my life anymore. You know, like it's slipping away from me. And, um, so I'm just I'm so grateful that I was that 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 information was shared with me and that I live in an era where I can go on YouTube and learn more and that that there's so many people that are beginning to understand the value um, of these drugs in in dealing with like trauma and other things, because like dealing with the trauma of my mom's death, it was like eventually it just became this loop in my mind of her shooting herself and her putting the gun in her mouth. And, and I was experiencing like the PTSD reactions of that a thousand times a day. And so I'm, I'm so grateful that that's not what my brain is filled with now. And I hope that this can give like other people hope about what the future could hold for them beyond these, these tragedies and traumas. And one of the 
beautiful things that I heard recently. I was thinking about how hurt people hurt people. And then I, I saw this thing someone wrote and it said that healed people heal people. And I was like, I want to be a healed person, you know, like learning from it, learning from the experience and having something to share, you know, because like I've noticed like in I'm in the support group online for people who lost someone to suicide and it almost feels like sometimes the only thing that can make you feel better about it is the fact that you have like something to offer someone who just started that path, you know? Yeah. And that, that's very you, Mm -hmm. you know, in the, in the short time that I've known you and in this conversation and uh, others I've listened to, it's very you Mm -hmm. to take it and then give, Mm -hmm. you know, Oh my God, the Mardi Gras beads are are full of lead. Mm-hmm. Okay, I heart Louisiana. Mm-hmm. You know, I've gone through this incredible tragedy, gun legislation. Yeah, you know, I I can't be in the crew I want to be in because mm-hmm. um, I'm under thirty. Mm-hmm. Well, bearded oysters. Yeah, and I think that that is you know, for the listener, what a way to live. Mm-hmm. What a way to respond to adversity. Mm-hmm. And what a way to to show resiliency in the world. So my mad hat is off to you. Thank you. For, for living in such a way. And with all that you've gone through, it sounds like you're feeling pretty good about Mardi Gras this year. I am. Is that right? Yeah. Is that accurate? Is yeah, this gonna I feel be a, really good about it. Is this gonna it. be a big, a big year for you? It's gonna be big. It's like the calmest I've ever been about it. Oh, beautiful. I'm, and you've got a couple of crews. You're doing Mad Hatter, and then yes. you've got two more, correct? Yes, so I run two sub-crews, the Beard Oysters and the Colossus Bike Zoo. And I had my Aslan to ride in it. <laughs> oh, I wish. Um, so we're going to be doing three parades. We're going to be doing the crew of Mad Hatters, crew of Muses, and crew of Tux. Wow. Where? How can people support you? How can people learn more about you? For listeners who have enjoyed your journey and want to be connected, what is the way that they can do that? There's so many ways. Uh, Donna'slaw.com, beardedoysters.org, fantasticcasket.com, colossus.org. Google me, find me. I'm really fun to Google. There's a lot of stuff there. Cool. Well, it's been such a pleasure. And thank you for being funny and open. And I, we definitely went to the weirdest place the show has gone. Okay, good. Yeah. No, at the KKK I hope Old that's Ball not the orgy. title of the show. No, I mean, it's, <laughs> we're not going to lead with that. I don't, well, who knows? I mean, in the, in this modern world, that actually would probably get the clicks, you know, right. but, um, mm-hmm. but we definitely went some weird places and some really tender places too. So I'm, I'm grateful that you've had me here in your studio and that you've invited me to be in your parade. Mm-hmm. What a cool thing. I, I want to be in a parade. Mm-hmm. So Well, I'm glad to be part of your community too. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm now you're to part- be like, you know, in the ranks of all these amazing people that you've interviewed and like part of this, you know, collection of knowledge that you're sharing mm-hmm. with your community. I'm, I'm a community builder. That's mm-hmm. my, that's my superpower is all around community content to create community Mm -hmm. and this show is building my community you know Mm -hmm. i would i get to be in a parade in mardi gras if it were not for this show would i just come here as a tourist and and um well you could you could buy your way i could buy my way in and (laughs) naively naively (laughs) throw the lead on the children right Right. yeah but instead Mm -hmm. instead we get to have this experience and Mm -hmm. i'm and i'm grateful so thank you i'm grateful as well thank you Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. 
If you liked the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival, and I'll see you on the dance floor. So now we have How Did the Podcast Go, um, which is the wonderful post-music segment of the show where we look back at this lovely two hours we've spent together, and I ask you, how do you think it went? I think it went great. I really liked it. <laughs> do you think we missed anything? Is there anything? In- we missed a million things. Okay. Did we miss anything that you're like, oh, we missed the thing? I don't think so. I think we're good. Yeah. I, I'm i really glad that we got like a chunk of what is Mardi Gras. Mm-hmm. That was cool because, and that coming out in line was really nice as opposed to like, welcome to the show. What's a Mardi Gras? Mm-hmm. You know, like I, that wouldn't have landed. It got really funny and weird. And that was nice. And then we had this like just a delicious, deep, ah, just intimate kind of somber moment. Um, Mm -hmm. And that it looped from the conversation in death in the beginning around. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm asking you how the podcast went and then I just told you, but... (laughs) I agree. That's what I liked. I like yeah. that. I li- these are some of the pieces that I, were really I like exciting it. for me. I like. I think a lot of the time when when I do interviews, this there's this sort of like projection that like here's this great person. She does these great things and she has this great life. And and I think that's really unfortunate, you know, because I think that people have so many up and ups and downs, and like finding your power like through that is so important and empowering yourself through whatever your own story is and whatever your skills are and to keep moving forward with that. And I think it's, I'm really grateful that, you know, we talked about like not glamorous things too. And, um, you know, you know what we, we didn't talk enough about how you have a desire to make vaginas ugly. (laughs) Well, to ruin vagina, to ruin vaginas. (laughs) I want to make a joke so bad, um, and I'm going to, and then edit it out. I have a desire to ruin vaginas, too. <laughs> uh, that's going to have to be out of there. I can't publish that. It makes me sound well, like a creep. I sort of feel like there's this idea that vaginas are a dick hole. Uh. And I think that there needs to be more concept that, like, vaginas exist with or without dick. You know, that that is not part of their identity. You know, mm. and so I think that by creating vagina that essentially is like prepped for dick and putting that out as the art is not the message that I want to share. Mm, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, that's that was what, while we were on our magical journey and you were talking about making ugly vaginas or, you know, mm-hmm. presenting that sort of thing. I was like, oh, that's mm-hmm. We didn't, we didn't go as deep into that as we might otherwise have. <laughs> and there are so many things that we could continue mm-hmm. to talk about, but such is our time as you have a hard stop at mm-hmm. 4.30, which is what time it is now. Oh, okay. So there you go. Yeah, cool. we did We did a little, little over two hours. Nice. Hey, thanks. This Thank was cool. You. I really enjoyed it. Me too. I love doing podcasts because it feels like I'm coming back to report on my life. And it's like this book report of my life where I get to create this summary and then 
later listen to it and kind of I, sometimes I feel like it's the podcasters that make me realize like who I am because of how what what they latch onto what questions they ask so I think it's such a transformative experience just to be able to be interviewed in a podcast yeah yeah and I think that the, as a podcaster like that's what I want too like I want to go Okay, my one of my favorite quotes, which really guides this podcast, is from a book called Finite and Infinite Games. And the the quote is essentially saying, oh, the book essentially says that there are two types of games. A finite game where you play to win and an infinite game where you play to create more games. And then it breaks down all of life into these two things. And it's so good. And my favorite quote from it is, infinite players play in complete openness. It's not openness as in candor, but openness as in vulnerability. It's not exposing the fixed self that has always been, but creating the dynamic self that is yet to be. And I feel like through conversation and podcasts, and what I, what I want to do is not have you reveal to me who you are. I want you to explore who you might be now here with me. And that's, that's the goal of it. With that in mind, we talked about the eulogy. How do you think we did? I think we did good. You can use us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely like re-release when I die. Send it to everyone. We'll blast it on the second line. <laughs>